Father, we thank you this morning that you have modeled for us what a perfect father is. Just the care that you have, the fact that you love us enough to discipline us, to give us guidance, to give us your wisdom, uh, to do whatever is necessary for our benefit, even our salvation. And Father, as, as we seek to be dads in, in the roles that you have placed us in within our families, we, we pray, first of all, that you would give us the strength to be strong and courageous, that we would defend the faith, that we would defend our families, uh, that we would be protectors, uh, that we would be role models, uh, that we would be those that are approachable and a safe place for our kids and our, and our spouses to go. Uh, Father, we just need you to make us the men that you want us to be. Thank you, Lord, for each of the fathers that are here today that chose to lead their families in worship on this Father's Day weekend. And I thank you for that. So we just commit ourselves as fathers to you, the task that you've given us. We're grateful for it. We humbly accept it. We acknowledge our need and dependence upon you in order to do that role well. We thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. I feel like as I stand up here today, I was kind of chuckling because back to the cordless mic, I don't have to deal with um, the wind and rustling pages and all kinds of things. It's like, I don't know what to do with my hands. I... And then I also laughed because this morning as I was looking around all of you as you came in, since we didn't have coffee, there was a lot of you that didn't know what to do with your hands as well. Because, you know, do we shake our hands? Do we, we don't have that cup of coffee that we can hold on to? So things will get better, I promise. As soon as we get to where we can serve coffee in accordance with um, what the governing recommendations are, uh, we'll have coffee for all of us addicts once again that we can fellowship around. So we're living in strange times. I'm sure for most of you that that you wake up on any given morning and you look at the news or you pick up a paper or you turn on whatever your media source is, and it's just like you're living a bizarre dream. It's almost surreal. Uh, just the images that we see and, and just the, all the things with the quarantine. Even this morning, we, we come in and we set up the chairs and it looks like we're back and we're back to normal. It just seems so very sterile. And it's just a, it's like, I just feel like some morning I'm going to wake up and it's like it's all going to go away and we're going to be back to normal. But the reality is that we're in changing times, as has been true for all of history. And so this morning what I want to do, last week we spent a good part of our time talking about how in the midst of the conversations within society and, and, and all of the angry voices that we need to stand firm on the Word of God and, and biblical truth. That needs to be our perspective, that we view the world and, and what we take our stand on. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to give us a picture of what the balancing idea of Scripture in that is. <clears throat> you will find, and, and you'll hear me say this more than one time, that as you study the Word of God, it is full of balancing truths. Things that, that when you first look at them, they appear to be in conflict with one another. And yet, Scripture teaches both as truth and both are indeed true. 
um, good example, the fact that Jesus Christ, as He came to this earth as a baby, was fully God and fully man. Now, how can someone be 100% of two different things? I don't understand that. But Scripture teaches that both those things are true. When we look at the attributes of God, and we look at God being a merciful God, He's a, a God that doesn't give what people deserve. And yet on the other side, He's a God of justice. And He does give people what they deserve. And ultimately, we will all be judged based on what we've done with Jesus Christ. Merciful and just. What about what Scripture teaches us about our salvation? On one hand, we're told that, that we were chosen in God before the foundation of the world. And in another place in Scripture, we're told, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, I can't reconcile those things in my mind, nor do I think that God wants me to be able, wants us to be able to, but nevertheless, both things are true. Another place it talks about in Ephesians that we are to speak the truth in love. Being truthful, being loving, that's hard. It's easy to be truthful, but sometimes it's brutally difficult. Um, we can be loving, but that sometimes means we don't tell the truth as we should. And so Scripture is plumb full of those kinds of, of, of balances or those kinds of tensions that's hold be, held between two things that are true. And, and it, it, we're told in the book of Ecclesiastes that, that, a, that a, man, a wise man will grasp one and not let go of the other. And so as believers, we need to recognize that, that those balancing truths, we need to hold on to both of them. Because if we let go of one and swing to one side, then we're out of balance. And the same thing with the other. And so this morning, what I want to look at is the balancing truth to us standing and staying true to biblical truth. The easiest way for us to do that in, in a secular society is to just hunker down and we keep our faith and we keep our mouth shut and we just are safe. That way we don't have to venture out, we don't get ourselves in trouble, we don't say something we shouldn't. But as believers in a secular society, that's not what we're called to do. We're called to have the foundation of biblical truth, but we're also called to engage our society. Because we have the message of the gospel. We have the answer to all of life's problems. Everything that we see displayed in the news and the media. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer to all those questions. And so we are compelled to engage our secular society with the message that we have been entrusted with. And so this morning what I want to do is I want to look at two examples in Scripture. And right now the present the present thing in our society has to do with, with racism and prejudice and partiality and all the conversations that go on around that. And within the New Testament, there is a similar type of, of, of prejudice and partiality that was present in the Jewish community and within the nation of Israel, and that's the Samaritans. And so this morning, I want to look at two examples, kind of take a, a bird's eye view of two, in which one, a Jew, Jesus interacted with a Samaritan, and another in which a Samaritan chose to interact with a Jew. And we're going to look at that and look at those two accounts and see what we can learn about staying on the platform of biblical truth, but yet engaging our culture with the message of the gospel. How 
to just fold out in, in these two. I appreciate Paul uh, reading the opening parts of the account of the Samaritan woman because it's kind of long and I didn't want to read that this morning, and so I appreciate that. So, let's first of all, let's talk about the prevailing culture, uh, the history of the Samaritans and the Jews. As, as is true in, our, in the current conversation in our society, as around the world, there's a lot of talk about history. How did we get here? How did these things come about? What was the trends and what was it that, that set these things in place? Let's talk about the history between the Samaritans and the Jews. Going back into the Old Testament, we just finished up talking about Exodus and how the nation of Israel was on the the edge of the promised land. From there, Joshua took them into the promised land and they conquered all the lands that, that God said was theirs to possess. After Joshua went off the scene, then there was a series of judges, the book of Judges that led Israel. After the judges came the kings. God gave Israel three kings, Saul and David and Solomon. At the end of Solomon's reign, there, began, there became a conflict between his son and another man named Jeroboam. And within that conflict, it became so severe that half of the nation of Israel split off from the other half. And so you had a divided kingdom. Judah was in the south. Israel was in the north. And Jeroboam was the king of the northern kingdom that broke off from the southern kingdom of Judah. And so, because Jerusalem and all the places of worship were in the southern kingdom of Judah, when the northern kingdom broke off, they needed a place to worship. Because they obviously couldn't go down to the part of the nation that they had separated themselves with. And so Jeroboam the king set up two places of worship. One in the city of Dan, one in the city of Bethel, which interestingly enough means the house of God. So there's a little bit of hypocrisy in that. But he set up two golden calves and two temples and two places that they could worship. And then the city of Samaria became the capital city of that northern kingdom. And so that's the first place that we begin to see um, Samaria and that particular region emerge in Scripture. So the northern nation of Israel was corrupt to to the very end. In all of their history until God sent judgment upon them, they did not have one righteous king, not one king that followed after God or sought God or, or was faithful to the call of, of, of God for his nation. And so in 722 BC, about 700 years before Christ came, God sent the Assyrians against the northern kingdom of Israel and they conquered them. They took them over. And for, the, for, the, for all practical purposes, those northern kingdoms... Um, disappeared. Because the Assyrians, the way that they conquered a people was that they depopulated the area. They didn't just come in and take over and set up, set up rulers. Rather, they took the people that were there and they dispersed them around the other areas that they conquered. So that, so that the Jews, in this case, were not able to come together and put up a resistance because their numbers were so small that were left in the land. And so, most of the Jews were shipped out. Many people from other nations that Assyria had conquered were repopulated back in to that northern area of Israel. And so what happened is that the Jews and those foreigners intermarried. And the Samaritan race became a race that was half-blooded Jews. And because of that, when we get into, into New Testament times, the, the Jews, especially the, the religious ruling class of Jews, hated the Samaritans 
because they were half-bloods. And, and even clear back in the Old Testament, in the giving of the law, Moses told the people, don't intermarry. Don't intermarry with other nations because you'll accept their gods and you'll accept their practices and they'll defile you. And so when we get to New Testament times, the Samaritans were a reminder to the Jews of their sinful past. And so they hated them. They hated them. If you look at a map, Galilee is on the northern end, New Testament times, Galilee is on the northern end of the kingdom, and Jerusalem is in, the, is in the bottom end of the kingdom. And so if you went back and forth between the two, Samaria is right in the middle. And so if, if you were traveling in those days back and forth, you had to go through Samaria. And many of the traditional super spiritual religious Jews would actually cross the Jordan River twice to go around Samaria so they didn't have to associate with anyone there. And so that's the prevailing culture. And as we look at these two accounts this morning, that is the framework. That's what was prevalent in society at that time. So first of all, let's look at Jesus in the account in John chapter 4 as he interacts with a the, with the Samaritan woman. And I want to look at three things about each one of these two encounters. The first thing we see about Jesus in in John chapter 4, is that there was a personal choice, a personal choice that he made. It says at the beginning in verse 4 of that, that he had to go through Samaria. It was on his direct route. But since Jesus was a Jew, had he chosen to go around Samaria, no one would have thought any less of him because of that, because of the hatred that the Jews had for the Samaritans. And so Jesus made a personal choice. He made a personal choice to go through this area full of people that there was a long history of prejudice and partiality towards. He made a personal choice to engage that culture and engage in that discussion. We find at the end of this chapter, at the end of this account, that when his disciples came back and saw that he was not only there, but was engaging in conversation with a Samaritan woman, they were surprised. That tells you what the, the, the natural feeling of the culture was. They were surprised, but they didn't say anything, the text tells us. And so Jesus made a personal choice to go through there, to engage, to, to have some kind of interaction with this other group of people in which there was conflict. The second thing we see about Jesus is that He made a point of contact. He made conversation with this Samaritan woman that came to the well. And I love the first thing that he did. He asked her for a drink. Now, we don't think anything about that in, in, in our culture. But if you were a Samaritan and a Jew at that particular time and culture, that was way out of line. Number one, you would never drink out of the same container as a Jew that a Samaritan had drank out of. That was the level of hatred that they had for each other. But Jesus said, would you give me a drink? a point of humility, a point of, of humbling himself, even though he was the Son of God, to, to interact and start a conversation with this woman that in society was really way, way below him in terms of the way that, that they were viewed. As you go through the conversation that they had, much of which Paul read this morning, you'll notice that, that, that the woman expresses frustration of, about the history and the prejudice and the way that the Jews treated the Samaritans. And yet Jesus chooses not to allow the conversation to go in that way. 
If you read through this account, and I hope you will this afternoon, you'll find that Jesus accepted what she had to say, but He directed the conversation to a spiritual realm, to what really mattered, to what really those two groups of people had in common. And that was the need of a Savior in a relationship with Jesus Christ. He kept the topic spiritual, not social. And ultimately, it culminated in a talk about spirituality that was common for both the Jews and the Samaritans. All those who worship God must worship in spirit and truth. That's what we have in common. That's what you need to be focusing on. That's what is a prevailing need in our society. Spirituality and commonality. Topics of choice as Jesus engaged in conversation with this woman. And then the last thing we see is a positive consequence. What came out of Jesus choosing to engage in this conversation and making a choice to go there? A positive consequence. In verses, in verses 40 and 41. Let me get caught up with my notes here. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and because of his words, many more became believers. So what was the outcome? What was the consequence of Jesus making a personal choice and making a, pers- a, a, a point of contact? People came to know Christ. An entire village that were considered outcast, that were treated prejudicially, They came to know Christ. All right, let's look at the other account of a Samaritan in Scripture. And I want to read this to you. Very familiar. This Samaritan doesn't even have a name. And yet we know him as the good Samaritan from Luke chapter 10. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. So in the case of the Good Samaritan, we look at this Jewish Samaritan conflict from the other point of view. Here is one who was the one in which there was prejudice against him in the Jewish society. And the one in need in this case was a Jew. We see the same three things in play that we saw in Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman. The first thing you see is a personal choice. A personal choice. When the Samaritan came to this man and he saw his physical condition and he saw that he had been hurt and he had been robbed and and he lay there in some kind of, of compromised physical position, he had a personal choice. The religious men that had already passed by, those that were the religious leaders of Israel that should be looking after the flock 
of, of their flock, the Jews, had passed by. And not only had they passed by, it said they went to the other side of the road. They wanted to make sure that they didn't have any contact with that person that was laying on the side of the road. <clears throat> but the Samaritan made a personal choice. He chose to engage in the need of somebody else. Somebody that was, he was at odds with in his society. A man that had everything been equal, and if they would have met on the road, and that man was in good spirits and good health, and the Samaritan was in good spirits and good health, that man might have very well walked on the other side of the road so as to not gotten close to him. And yet he made a personal choice. He saw someone in need. His point of contact was that he took care of the man. He did whatever the the man needed in order to get help. He bandaged his wounds. He put on oil and wine. He, he, he spent his own personal money and his own personal resources in order to help this man get what he needed. He engaged. And we see the same thing true as we saw in the story of Jesus and the Samaritan. A positive consequence. What's the positive consequence of this story? This account of the Good Samaritan that Jesus taught about is one of probably the most well-known passages in the Gospels. This man was held up by Jesus as one who was an example of a good neighbor, who showed what true religion was and care and concern for his fellow man, irregardless of the prevailing culture. And so we have before us an example of of crossing the divide and ministering to those that are not in the same group or not thought of the same in our society. And so we see those same three things in place. So what should be our response? As I thought about this the last couple of weeks, as I, I kind of knew where I wanted to be this morning, the parable of the talents is what came to my mind. Because in reality, as believers in a secular society, we hold within, our, within ourselves the most incredible gift that anyone could receive, and that's a gift of salvation the gift of mercy and grace and Jesus sending His Son to die for us. That's what we have. That's what we possess. If you remember the the parable of the talents from Matthew chapter 25, there was a man that went away, and he went away on a journey for a while. And while he was on the journey, he took three of his servants, and he gave each of them some resources, some money to take care of while he was gone. And the first he gave five talents. I don't know why my voice is. Maybe it's because we're inside. And the first man, the first servant, he gave five talents to take care of while he was gone. And the second servant, he gave two talents. And the third servant, he gave one. And each of them were to do something with what they had been entrusted with. And so when the man came back, Uh, The man who was given five had invested that wisely, and he had received five more. He doubled his money. The second man that had been given two, he invested as well, and he had 
four to give back. He had doubled his, the master's investment as well. And the third servant, in fear of his master's retaliation, had taken the talent that he was given and he buried it in the ground because he wanted to keep it safe. He wanted to make sure that, that when the master came back that he could return to him everything that, that he was entrusted with. And you recall <clears throat> Matthew 25, verses 24, the words of the master when he came back to this servant. said, And the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and I hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. And as I read the words of that servant to his master and the master's response, I can't help but think about us as believers living in a secular society. What am I doing with the message of the gospel that God has entrusted to me? What am I doing with that? It's so hard in the present circumstances and in in the conversation in our society. We don't want to say anything. We don't want to engage in anything because we're afraid we'll say something wrong or we're afraid we'll say something um, that'll offend someone or we're afraid that we won't stand firm on on the message of biblical truth. And so what do we do? We hide it. We keep it to ourselves because we don't want to offend anybody. And yet in reality, God has entrusted to us the message that is the answer to all of the discussions that we see going on in society. That's the answer. The greatest need of mankind is to be in a right relationship with Jesus Christ. And God's entrusted us with that message. And as a believer, what am I doing with that? Am I, am I keeping it to myself? Am I hiding it in the ground so that when Jesus comes back, I can say, I've, I've been faithful. I've, I've kept a message. I've stayed true. I've stayed on the platform of biblical truth. Or am I engaging my society and engaging my sphere of influence, those people that I visit with and I have relationships with, am I engaging with them in that message. We have the same three things for all of us every day that we saw in these two accounts. It's a personal choice. I can choose to hide that gift that God has given and not share it and keep it to myself and live under the promises and the the provisions of God for me. Or I can make a personal choice and make a point of contact and engage a society an individual, someone within my sphere of influence with the message that can save them. And the positive consequence comes, God says, when my word is given out, it will not return to me void. It will accomplish what I desire and it will bear fruit in where I send it. 
So we know that, that when we engage a secular, unsaved society with a message of Christ, that at that point in time, the promise of God about what He's going to do with His Word and how He's going to use His Word, that comes into play. And the results are not mine. It's not my job to persuade somebody. It's the Spirit of God's job. It's my job to make a personal choice, to make a point of contact, and the consequences are God's. And so as believers this morning, we have to hang between those two balancing truths. We need to stand firm on biblical truth and allow that to be the perspective and the lens through which we view the world. But we also are called to engage the society in which we live in, to have hard conversations, to visit with people, to talk to people, to share Christ with people, to to not hide the message that can be most helpful, the answer to all life's problems and difficulties, to make an eternal difference in the lives of people that we're around. One thing that I thought about this week, that, and, and it's going to be, the choice is going to be different for all of us. But we all know that, <clears throat> that in the present rhetoric in our, in our country, that there's a lot of angry voices. There's a lot of angry voices on, on every side of the discussion. There's a lot of angry voices. And I believe that as believers, if we join in the conversation with the angry voices, that seldom helps the discussion. In Proverbs, several times it talks about a calm voice um, calming wrath, a calm answer dispelling wrath. And so I think for us as we engage our society that it is best served across the dinner table or across a picnic table at the park or one-on-one, or one-on-two, or family-to-family in those quiet conversations in which we can sit down across the table from one another and we can look in each other's eyes and we can see that these people that we're engaged with in conversation with are souls, other souls that are made in the image of God and precious and loved and worthy of the death of Jesus Christ for them. When we take our message and, 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 and it's natural to think, well, I can throw it out on social media and I can affect the most people that way. For some, that's the correct response. For many, the response is, how do I engage within the people that God has put in my sphere of influence in my daily life? And that's what it'll look like. But we have to make the personal choice. We have to make the point of contact. And as believers, we know that there'll be a positive consequence because as I share, I'm walking in obedience to what God's called me to do, and the Word of God will accomplish what He desires in the lives of those people that we choose to talk about. So we can't do nothing. We can't do nothing. We have to engage a secular society. We have to engage with the message of the gospel. That's the source. That's the only true place of salvation and healing that there is. Let's not hide what God's entrusted to us, but rather let's share it as God gives us opportunity. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning just for the opportunity to be together. 
and just how, how good it is to be gathered in a, in a room full of people that, that want to be here because they love you. They want to be here because they have a relationship with you. And we take great comfort and encouragement in that. And it makes us just feel good to know that we're in, in a family, as it were. And yet the reality, Lord, is that most of us during the rest of the week will be in a secular society. We'll be around people that, that need to know you as Savior and Lord and, and don't understand the depth of their fallenness and their need of a Savior. And so I pray for each of us this week as we move about in a society that is trying to put you outside that we would engage in conversation, that we would make contact, that we would be strong and courageous, that we wouldn't cower away and hide that message that you've entrusted to us. And we know that you'll be pleased with our obedience and you'll honor your word and make a difference in lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.